Chapter 13, Part 1 of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arrowit. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter 13, Part 1 Kiloe and Konos Islands. Kiloe, General Aspect, Boat Excursion, Native Indians, Castro, Tame Fox, Ascend San Pedro, Conos Archipelago, Peninsula of Tres Montes, Granitic Range, Boat Wrecked Sailors, Lowe's Harbor, Wild Potato, Formation of Peat, Myopotamus, Otter and Mice, Choco and Barking Bird, Opetiarhincus, Singular character of ornithology, petrels. November 10th. The Beagle sailed from Valparaiso to the south for the purpose of surveying the southern part of Chile, the island of Chiloe, and the broken land called the Conos Archipelago, as far south as the peninsula of Tres Montes. On the 21st, we anchored in the Bay of San Carlos, the capital of Chiloe. This island is about 90 miles long, the breadth of rather less than thirty. The land is hilly, but not mountainous, and is covered by one great forest, except where a few green patches have been cleared round the thatched cottages. From a distance, the view somewhat resembles that of Tierra del Fuego, but the woods, when seen nearer, are incomparably more beautiful. Many kinds of fine evergreen trees, and the plants with a tropical character, here take the place of the gloomy beach of the southern shores. In winter the climate is detestable, and in summer it is only a little better. I should think there are few parts of the world within the temperate regions where so much rain falls. The winds are very boisterous, and the sky almost always clouded. To have a week of fine weather is something wonderful. It is even difficult to get a single glimpse of the Cordillera. During our first visit, once only the volcano of Osorno stood out in bold relief, and that was before sunrise. It was curious to watch as the sun rose, the outline gradually fading away in the glare of the eastern sky. The inhabitants, from their complexion and low stature, appeared to have three-fourths of Indian blood in their veins. They are a humble, quiet, industrious set of men. Although the fertile soil, resulting from the decomposition of the volcanic rocks, supports a rank vegetation, yet the climate is not favorable to any production which requires much sunshine to ripen it. There is very little pasture for the larger quadrupeds, and, in consequence, the staple articles of food are pigs, potatoes, and fish. The people all dress in strong woolen garments, which each family makes for itself, and dyes with indigo of a dark blue color. The arts, however, are in the rudest state, as may be seen in their strange fashion of plowing, their method of spinning, grinding corn, and in the construction of their boats. The forests are so impenetrable that the land is nowhere cultivated except near the coasts and on the adjoining islets. Even where paths exist, they are scarcely passable from the soft and swampy state of the soil. The inhabitants, like those of Tierra del Fuego, move about chiefly on the beach or in boats. Although with plenty to eat, the people are very poor. There is no demand for labor, and consequently the lower orders cannot scrape together money sufficient to purchase even the smallest luxuries. There is also a great deficiency of a circulating medium. 
I have seen a man bringing on his back a bag of charcoal with which to buy some trifle, and another carrying a plank to exchange for a bottle of wine. Hence every tradesman must also be a merchant, and again sell the goods which he takes in exchange. November 24th. The yawl and whale-boat were sent under the command of Mr. now Captain Sullivan to survey the eastern or inland coast of Kiloe, and with orders to meet the Beagle at the southern extremity of the island, to which point she would proceed by the outside, so as thus to circumnavigate the whole. I accompanied this expedition, but instead of going in the boats the first day, I hired horses to take me to Chacao, at the northern extremity of the island. The road followed the coast, every now and then crossing promontories covered by fine forests. In these shaded paths, it is absolutely necessary that the whole road should be made of logs of wood, which are squared and placed by the side of each other. From the rays of the sun never penetrating the evergreen foliage, the ground is so damp and soft that except by this means neither man nor horse would be able to pass along. I arrived at the village of Chacao shortly after the tents belonging to the boats were pitched for the night. The land in this neighborhood had been extensively cleared, and there were many quiet and most picturesque nooks in the forest. Chacao was formerly the principal port in the island, but many vessels have been lost, owing to the dangerous currents and rocks in the straits, the Spanish government burnt the church, and thus arbitrarily compelled the greater number of inhabitants to migrate to San Carlos. We had not long bivouacked before the barefooted son of the governor came down to reconnoiter us. Seeing the English flag hoisted at the yawl's masthead, he asked with the utmost indifference whether it was always to fly at Chacao. In several places the inhabitants were much astonished at the appearance of men-of-war's boats, and hoped and believed it was the forerunner of a Spanish fleet coming to recover the island from the patriot government of Chile. All the men in power, however, had been informed of our intended visit, and were exceedingly civil. While we were eating our supper, the governor paid us a visit. He had been a lieutenant colonel in the Spanish service, but was now miserably poor. He gave us two sheep, and accepted in return two cotton handkerchiefs, some brass trinkets, and a little tobacco. 25th. Torrents of rain. We managed, however, to run down the coast as far as Huapileno. The whole of this eastern side of Chiloé has one aspect. It is a plain, broken by valleys and divided into little islands, and the whole thickly covered with one impervious blackish-green forest. On the margins there are some cleared spaces surrounding the high-roofed cottages. 26th. The day rose splendidly clear. The volcano of Orsono was spouting out volumes of smoke. This most beautiful mountain, formed like a perfect cone, and white with snow, stands out in front of the cordillera. Another great volcano, with a saddle-shaped summit, also emitted from its immense crater little jets of steam. Subsequently we saw the lofty-peaked Corcovado, well deserving the name of El Famoso Corcovado. Thus we beheld, from one point of view, three great active volcanoes, each about seven thousand feet high. In addition to this, far to the south, there were other lofty cones covered with snow, which, although not known to be active, must be in their original volcanic. The line of the Andes is not, in this neighborhood, nearly so elevated as in Chile, neither does it appear to form so perfect a barrier between the regions of the earth. This great range, although running in a straight north and south line, owing to an optical deception, always appeared more or less curved, for the lines drawn from each peak to the beholder's eye necessarily converged like the radii of a semicircle and it was not possible 
owing to the clearness of the atmosphere and the absence of all intermediate objects, to judge how far and distant the farthest peaks were off, they appeared to stand in a flattish semicircle. Landing at midday, we saw a family of pure Indian extraction. The father was singularly like York Minister, and some of the younger boys, with their ruddy complexions, might have been mistaken for Pampas Indians. Everything I have seen convinces me of the close connection of the different American tribes, who nevertheless speak distinct languages. This party could muster but little Spanish, and talk to each other in their own tongue. It is a pleasant thing to see the aborigines advance to the same degree of civilization, however low that may be, which their white conquerors have attained. More to the south we saw many pure Indians. Indeed, all the inhabitants of some of the islets retain their Indian surnames. In the census of 1832, there were in Kiloe and its dependencies 42,000 souls. The greater number of these appeared to be of mixed blood. 11,000 retained their Indian surnames, but it is probable that not nearly all of these are of a pure breed. Their manner of life is the same with that of the other poor inhabitants, and they are all Christians, but it is said that they yet retain some strange superstitious ceremonies, and that they pretend to hold communication with the devil in certain caves. Formerly, everyone convicted of this offense was sent to the Inquisition at Lima. Many of the inhabitants, who were not included in the 11,000 with Indian surnames, cannot be distinguished by their appearance from Indians. Gomez, the governor of Lemuy, is descended from noblemen of Spain on both sides, but by constant intermarriages with the natives, the present man is an Indian. On the other hand, the governor of Quincao boasts much of his purely kept Spanish blood. We reached at night a beautiful little cove, north of the island of Caucahue. The people here complained of want of land. This is partly owing to their own negligence in not clearing the woods, and partially to the restrictions by the government, which makes it necessary, before buying ever so small a piece, to pay two shillings to the surveyor for measuring each quadra, one fifty yards square, together with whatever price he fixes for the value of the land. After his valuation, the land must be put up three times to auction, and if no one bids more, the purchaser can have it at that rate. All these exactions must be a serious check to clearing the ground, where the inhabitants are so extremely poor. In most countries, forests are removed without much difficulty by the aid of fire, but in Kiloe, from the damp nature of the climate, and the sort of trees, it is necessary to first cut them down. This is a heavy drawback to the prosperity of Kiloe. In the time of the Spaniards, the Indians could not hold land, and a family, after having cleared a piece of ground, might be driven away, and the property seized by the government. The Chilean authorities are now performing an act of justice, giving to each man, according to his grade of life, a certain portion of land. The value of uncleared ground is very little. The government gave Mr. Douglas, the present surveyor, who informed me of these circumstances, eight and a half square miles of forest near San Carlos, in lieu of a debt, and this he sold for three hundred and fifty dollars, or about seventy pounds sterling. The two succeeding days were fine, and at night we reached the island of Quincao. This neighborhood is the most cultivated part of the archipelago, for a broad strip of land on the coast of the main island, as well as on many of the smaller adjoining ones, it is almost completely cleared. Some of the farmhouses seemed very comfortable. I was curious to ascertain how rich any of these people may be, but Mr. Douglas says that no one can be considered as possessing a regular income. One of the richest landowners might possibly accumulate, in a long industrious life, as much as a thousand pounds sterling, but should this happen, it would all be stowed away in some secret corner, for it is the custom of almost every family to have a jar or treasure chest buried in the ground. November 30th. Early on Sunday morning we reached Castro, 
the ancient capital of Chiloe, but now a most forlorn and deserted place. The usual quadrangular arrangement of Spanish towns could be traced, but the streets and plaza were coated with fine green turf, on which sheep were browsing. The church, which stands in the middle, is entirely built of plank, and has a picturesque and venerable appearance. The poverty of the place may be conceived from the fact that, although containing some hundreds of inhabitants, one of our party was unable anywhere to purchase either a pound of sugar or an ordinary knife. No individual possessed either a watch or a clock, and an old man, who was supposed to have a good idea of time, was employed to strike the church bell by guess. The arrival of our boats was a rare event in this quiet, retired corner of the world, and nearly all the inhabitants came down to the beach to see us pitch our tents. They were very civil, and offered us a house, and one man even sent us a cask of cider as a present. In the afternoon we paid our respect to the governor, a quiet old man who, in his appearance and manner of life, was scarcely superior to an English cottager. At night heavy rain set in, which was hardly sufficient to drive away from our tents the large circle of lookers-on. An Indian family, who had come to trade in a canoe from Caelan, bivouacked near us. They had no shelter during the rain. In the morning I asked a young Indian, who was wet to the skin, how he passed the night. He seemed perfectly content, and answered, Muy bien, senor. December 1st. We steered for the island of Wumui. I was anxious to examine a reported coal mine, which turned out to be a lignite of little value in the sandstone, probably of an ancient tertiary epoch, of which these islands are composed. When we reached Lemwe, we had much difficulty in finding any place to pitch our tents, for it was spring-tide, and the land was wooded down to the water's edge. In a short time we were surrounded by a large group of the nearly pure Indian inhabitants. They were much surprised at their arrival, and said one to the other, This is the reason we have seen so many parrots lately. The chukau, an odd red-breasted little bird, which inhabits the thick forest, and utters very peculiar noises, has not cried beware for nothing. They were soon anxious for barter. Money was scarcely worth anything, but their eagerness for tobacco was something quite extraordinary. After tobacco, indigo came next in value, then capsicum, old clothes, and gunpowder. The latter article was required for a very innocent purpose. Each parish has a public musket, and the gunpowder was wanted for making a noise on their saint or feast days. The people here live chiefly on shellfish and potatoes. In certain seasons they catch also, in corrales, or hedges under water, many fish which are left on the mud banks as the tide falls. They occasionally possess fowls, sheep, goats, pigs, horses, and cattle, the order in which they are here mentioned, expressing their respective numbers. I never saw anything more obliging and humble than the manners of these people. They generally began with stating that they were poor natives of the place, and not Spaniards, and that they were in sad want of tobacco and other comforts. At Caitlin, the most southern island, the sailors bought with a stick of tobacco, in the value of three halfpence, two fowls, one of which, the Indian stated, has skin between its toes, and turned out to be a fine duck, and with some cotton handkerchiefs, worth three shillings, three sheep and a large bunch of onions were procured. The yawl at this place was anchored some way from the shore, and we had fears for her safety from robbers during the night. Our pilot, Mr. Douglas, accordingly told the constable of the district that we always placed sentinels with loaded arms, and not understanding Spanish, if we saw any person in the dark, we should assuredly shoot him. The constable, with much humility, agreed to the perfect propriety of this arrangement, and promised us that no one should stir out of his house during that night. During the four succeeding days we continued sailing southward. The general features of the country remained the same, but it was much less thickly inhabited. On the large island of Tanqui there was scarcely one cleared spot, the trees on every side extending their branches over the sea-beach. 
I one day noticed, growing on the sandstone cliffs, some very fine plants of the panke, Gonera scabra, which sometimes resembles the rhubarb on a gigantic scale. The inhabitants eat the stalks, which are subacid, and tan leather with the roots, and prepare a black dye from them. The leaf is nearly circular, but deeply indented on its margin. I measured one which was nearly eight feet in diameter, and therefore is no less than twenty-four in circumference. The stalk is rather more than a yard high, and each plant sends out four or five of these enormous leaves, presenting together a very noble appearance. December 6th. We reached Caelan, called El Fin del Cristianidad. In the morning we stopped for a few minutes at a house on the northern end of Lilac, which was the extreme point of South American Christendom, and a miserable hovel it was. The latitude is 43 degrees 10 minutes, which is 2 degrees farther south than the Rio Negro on the Atlantic coast. These extreme Christians were very poor, and under the plea of their situation begged for some tobacco. As a proof of the poverty of these Indians, I may mention that shortly before this we had met a man who had travelled three days and a half on foot, and had as many to return, for the sake of recovering the value of a small axe and a few fish. How very difficult it must be to buy the smallest article, when such trouble is taken to recover so small a debt. In the evening we reached the island of San Pedro, where we found the beagle at anchor. In doubling the point, two of the officers landed to take a round of angles with the theodolite. A fox, Canis fulvipes, of a kind said to be peculiar to the island and very rare in it, and which is a new species, was sitting on the rocks. He was so intently absorbed in watching the work of the officers that I was able, by quietly walking up behind, to knock him on the head with my geological hammer. This fox, more curious or more scientific, but less wise than the generality of his brethren, is now mounted in the museum of the Zoological Society. We stayed three days in this harbour, on one of which Captain Fitzroy, with a party, attempted to ascend to the summit of San Pedro. The woods here had rather a different appearance from those on the northern part of the island. The rock, also, being micaceous slate, there was no beach, but the steep sides dipped directly beneath the water. The general aspect and consequence was more like that of Tierra del Fuego than of Chiloe. In vain we tried to gain the summit. The forest was so impenetrable that no one who has not beheld it can imagine so entangled a mass of dying and dead tree trunks. I am sure that often, for more than ten minutes together, our feet never touched the ground, and we were frequently ten or fifteen feet above it, so that the seamen as a joke called out the soundings. At other times we kept one after another on our hands and knees under the rotten trunks. In the lower part of the mountain, noble trees of the winter's bark, and a laurel like the sassafras with fragrant leaves, and others, the names of which I do not know, were matted together by a trailing bamboo or cane. Here we were more like fishes struggling in a net than any other animal. On the higher parts, brushwood takes the place of larger trees, with here and there a red cedar or an ellers pine. I was also pleased to see, at an elevation of little less than a thousand feet, our old friend the southern beech. There were, however, poor stunted trees, and I should think that this must be nearly their northern limit. We ultimately gave up the attempt in despair. End of chapter 13, part 1